We are here today rejoicing, um, some of you, I'm sure, that we're finishing 1 Peter. <clears throat> it's, been, it's been a good study. Actually, I believe 20 weeks or 21 weeks of a study now that Jay began for us and that we're um, looking forward to finishing today. So if you have your Bibles with you or an electronic version of that, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we'll look at the final greeting in verses 12 through 14. We're going to look at the final greeting uh, from 1 Peter chapter 5, 12 through 14. We'll read that together and pull out a few things, and then we're going to hone in on one specific statement that Peter makes in verse 12. This is God's word. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so we have Peter here kind of uh, almost like he's taken the mic a little bit at the end of this letter, and he's leaning in. And he's given these last few statements. He wants to offer some clarity to what he's just said. Um, This would have been read to a gathering just like you um, in the 60s. Peter's letter would have gone to a church gathered. Maybe a church gathered in 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 a courtyard of a large homeowner. Somebody who's an official, someone who has status. Maybe it's like Rhoda's um, situation where Peter was in prison and they were all gathered and praying in a house. And when he comes uh, and knocks on the door, she finally comes and answers the door. And they said, no, 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 that's not Peter. Peter's in prison. So it would have been a house. It would have been uh, a situation, maybe a synagogue, where Jews had come to an understanding that Jesus Christ had come and the Messiah had come. And so it was Jews meeting in a synagogue together. So you'd have had a setting like this, and they would have pulled open Peter's letter, and they would have read it, and it would have taken them 15, 20 minutes to read through this letter. And they would have sung sung songs like we have, and they would have heard from someone explaining this letter. And so now, what we're going to do today is we're going to see a couple of things that Peter wants us to see, and we're going to go back, and we're going to look at this letter, and we're going to rehearse from verse 12. It says... This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And we're going to rehearse what we've heard about the grace of the God. Grace of God. We're going to rehearse what we've heard about the gospel. And we're going to stand firm in this truth today. So, prepare our hearts um, to hear again this letter in a broad sweep. To connect some dots and to stand firm in the truth that God has for us. And this is from God's spirit to us today. So, Peter uh, says, this is from Sylvanus. Sylvanus was a brother in Christ. He would have been a part of a team. Um, Sylvanus worked with Paul. He was along the the road with Peter. He would have been a friend with Luke. Um, All these men who are going about and traveling on these different missionary journeys journeys are interacting with each other, and they would have been a part of a a team. You could probably think of USMB's missions uh, team um, 
there are several guys on a board that are constantly traveling and going to churches and doing leadership training and doing these things. And there are these mission boards all over the nation. Um, Many of you are familiar with lots of them. And Peter is saying, Sylvanius, he's a faithful brother. Listen to him. This was given through Sylvanius. Now, some think that Sylvanius would have written it for Peter, but most likely Sylvanius was the messenger who was bringing this letter to these people originally. And so um, he said, listen, this is, this is my faithful brother. Trust him. Listen to him. He's going to read this to you. This is from me, and he's putting a stamp of approval on it by these last few phrases. So he says, I've written to this, written to you this briefly, exhorting, that is, telling you what you need to do and also declaring what is the true grace of God, reminding you what is the grace of God and exhorting you on how you should respond to the grace of God. And so we have this rehearsal of this truth. And that's where we're going to park for most of our time. In verse 13, Peter says, She who is at Babylon, um, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So he's used that chosen word at the very first, in the first verse, first and second verse of the um, letter. He says, you elect of God, you elect exiles. Um, This is the same idea. You who are chosen, also the ones who are in Rome. That would have been um, his, his words for Rome. Um, this is where he was. It would have given him enough time before he was actually martyred in Rome for this letter to have been sent and read. So it's around 62 or 63 that this letter was written. And Peter was martyred. He was crucified upside down, as tradition lead, tells us, um, just shortly after that in Rome. And so he is sending greetings from Rome as he is proclaiming the gospel there. And he said, she who is at Babylon, the ones chosen there, the church, basically sends you greeting. And then he says this, and so does Mark, my son. This is John Mark. Do you remember the story of John Mark? Um, he would have been the, the young disciple who followed um, Paul and went on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul was fed up with this guy. He was too young, he was too green, and he was not good for the ministry. And so John Mark and, and Barnabas actually have a parting of ways. And what God does with that is he uses Barnabas to shape John Mark into a useful, profitable servant. Someone that Paul later says, and send John Mark in one of his letters. He says, send John Mark, he's profitable for the ministry. And so you have this young son of Peter not his actual biological son. This would have been a son in the faith, like you hear Paul talking about Timothy, my son in the faith. And so if you as parents have had a chance to lead one of your children to Christ, you can call them a true son in the faith or a true daughter in the faith because you have been able to see the birth of the Holy Spirit come alive in them. They've been born again over your, in your watch. That's a good thing. And Peter is rejoicing with us and saying, this is Mark. This is my son. And so he's, he's rejoicing that Mark is his son of the faith. So, verse 14, greet one another with a holy kiss, or kiss of love. <laughs> Don't do that. Um, not in our culture anyways. Um, Ed Welch writes a book. It's called Side by Side. It's about walking with others in wisdom and love. And I want to read you something out of here. And he's talking about, essentially, Christians are both needy and needed. And what this 
side-by-side book tells you or tells me is that we should, as needy and needed, as needy, needing Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf, and yet um, needed because the Spirit is in us, and it's the work of saints to build up the body of Christ, Ephesians chapter 4, for the work of ministry. Those things are necessary for us, and he outlines the idea of moving toward each other in greeting like this. God moves toward us. God always takes the initiative. Even when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, he followed them into exile, provided a way of escape. Watch him pursue his people, as symbolized in the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. If you read the book of Hosea, you can hear this story very clearly. There's a marriage between a prophet and and an adulterous wife, When God's people run away from him, as Gomer did from Hosea, God moves toward them and cares for them, as Hosea did for Gomer. Better yet, watch Jesus. He relentlessly pursued and invited the marginalized and the outcasts to be with him. Our our picture of kings is that they are cordoned off from the public. Like the Ming dynasty, uh, emperors of China living in their forbidden city. In contrast, though, our king does not simply leave the castle door ajar waiting for a brave subject to come in unannounced. He goes out to his people in the everyday garb and personally invites them to stay with him, to have a meal with him. So Jesus is God in the flesh who stepped down from his throne, entered our lives and affairs by coming flesh, becoming flesh. In doing this, he removed all the boundaries and the barriers between him and us. God comes to us. And that is grace. And it starts a cycle of, gra- of grace throughout the body of Christ. As the king goes, so go his people. So what Peter is calling them to do here culturally for them, which would have been fine, a holy kiss, I'm going to call us to do. Move together toward each other. Take the initiative to greet one another with a brotherly love or a handshake. Uh, uh, give, give your friend a hug. Talk to them about the grace of God and your stance in it and move toward people. Greeting is not simply a formality. Greeting is a rehearsal of God's coming to us and drawing near to us. So greeting, when you read this at the last of these epistles, don't just slide over it. Greeting means that we move forward and take initiative as God did for us and on our behalf. And we rejoice to say, God is good. Brother and sister in Christ, how are you today? God is king. We love him. So, Peter wants us to move towards each other. He wants us to greet one another with sincerity, with true love. He wants us to be at peace because we're in Christ Jesus. He wants to rehearse the truth of God's grace. This is the true grace of God in verse 12. Stand firm in it. And so we're going to look at this true grace of God and what that means for us. Today, if there's nothing else, I want us to remember that this book has told us what it means to stand firm in the grace of God. And so we get this big picture view of what Peter's talking about in his letter, and we need to see the grace of God in our lives. We need to see it in scripture, and we need to rehearse it. We need to bring it back to bear on us right now. We need it um, not only for um, the fact that Peter says we should, we need it for daily work 
in our hearts to soften us and to remind us of what God's doing in the world and his big picture. The grace of God defined. The grace of God is the favor or the merit of God. And so in in theology, if you read, you'll get this definition come across. The grace of God is the unmerited favor of God on our behalf or the unmerited favor favor of God to the undeserving. I'm the undeserving. I'm the unmeriting one. And God pours his grace out on me. His grace and his favor. And he does that through the work of the gospel. In systematic theology, that is, we look at the Bible and we see what it says about grace in this area, in this area, in this area, and we compile it. That systematic theology says there's a common grace of God and then there's a specific grace of God. The common grace of God is, is like we experienced this last night, this storm that came in and gave us rain. God reigns. Sins reign on the just and the unjust. Sins reign on everyone because he is gracious and favorable to his creation because he will fill, fulfill his purposes. He will um, supply his promises. He says, I will not let the, um, in the Old Testament, he says, I will not let the seasons end. And I will do this, I will uphold them because it shows I uphold my covenant with my people. And so when we get the rain our hearts can rise in worship because God is showing his grace on his creation all over. But the rain comes to the just and the unjust. And so when we see God's grace, we see it also as something that's specific. And that's why Peter is writing to us and wants us to remind us of the specific grace of God because he has said, you are elect exiles, elect to receive the supply of grace that comes through Jesus Christ uh, in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 2. It's according to God's foreknowledge. It's for sanctification through the Spirit of God in us, and it's for obedience to Jesus Christ. This grace, this specific grace, is so that we might come into a relationship with God and know it and be transformed by it. So Peter is calling us in chapter 5 to rehearse the true grace of God and to stand firm in it. So God's grace is first unmerited. I'm not in a place where I merit God's grace. I don't deserve God's grace for any reason. Not my status, not my beauty. Not that I'm speaking for me, I'm not beautiful. But if, if we're thinking about this as a body, as a corporate people, it's not our status, it's not our beauty, it's not our socioeconomic stance, it's not our independent progress, it's not our mental acumen, or our race that gives us the grace of God or merits it. It's actually not merited at all. Because of Adam and Eve, we are in rebellion against God, and yet God would pour his grace out on us by sending us Jesus Christ to redeem from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation a people called for his glory. And we're going to see that in chapter 2. We've heard of that already in Peter. And so second, then, grace is undeserved. So this is to clarify that I can do nothing else in all of eternity to come into a deserving category. I cannot at, at any time in all of eternity come into a place where I actually do deserve God's grace. It's totally unmerited. It's totally of God. And so salvation, when we rehearse salvation, we rehearse the true grace of God, we rehearse the fact that it's from him, 
It is through him, and my life in Christ is only by what God has done. So that is what we need to rehearse today, that God's grace comes to us outside of our merit. Peter's addressing those who have received the specific grace of God. Romans eight twenty six through 30 tells us that God sends his spirit to be with and indwell his saints, and their end is secure. He's going to call and justify and glorify his people. And he says, I will send my spirit. Ephesians 1 says, there's a spirit that, that comes to you who has a seal on you unto the day of redemption. It's like the king is placing his stamp on those he calls to receive his grace. And he does that for his glory. And so we're going to take the next few minutes and rehearse this truth as it goes, goes down here through First um, Peter. In summary of this whole book and this letter, um, Wayne Grudem says this, the entire Christian life is one of grace. God's daily bestowal of blessings, strength, help, forgiveness, and fellowship with himself, all of which we need, none of which we ever deserve. All is of grace every day. From continual trust in that grace and from continual obedience empowered by it, Christians must not move. We must stand in that grace. Rather, we must stand in it until the day of our death. So what the true grace of God is not today. We don't need to hear or think or reinforce in our minds that the true grace of God is based on positive thinking, a life of ease. The true grace of God is not a blessed life with wealth and happiness here because we do certain things and give money to the church. The true grace of God is not freedom to do as we like. The true grace of, not, of God is not having a family that turns out just right. Rather, Peter wants us to see that the true grace of God is more future-looking than all of those things. The true grace of God will rehearse first, first Peter chapter 1, verses 3. 3 to 5. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to start. I'm going to give some summary statements first, and then we'll go to some specifics. In the first, the first chapter, we rehearse that <clears throat> we're born again to a living hope. Because of God's grace, you and I are born again. We were dead men. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. Because I believe that I'm a sinner. I still struggle with sin. And so, because I was dead in my sins and unable to merit God's grace, merit God's favor, God made me alive gave me faith, and because of his grace, I've received salvation, and I have become his workmanship in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so, because of that work, then we have been able to rehearse here, again, in, a, in, a, in other words by Peter, a different writer with different emphases, but the same truth, that we've been born again to a living hope, invited to purification through sufferings. And you might say, well, that's not very fun. But that's what Peter says. And he says that's because we've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one who suffered in our place, the one who suffered and led us in suffering so that we might experience and receive the glory that he got and does get when our final salvation is seen. And so we're rehearsing that. This actually changes the way we're to live. 
chapter 2, 4 through 12, talks about um, these people are not just elected individuals, but rather a body. We've heard that we're to be a new nation, a new kingdom, a new priesthood. We're actually called out to be a possession of God. God gives us his grace and bestows his grace on us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we become a new possession, so that we're made new, transformed as a people, not just individuals, to look all of us like God designed us to look, not just as individuals. And so that's why a book like this is timely. We're to be side by side because we all need each other to look like God designed us to look. Chapter 2, 13 through 3, 7 really hones in on the fact that we are God's people on display to a watching world. And this is through submission to, in life to not just out, to not, excuse me, to a life that is not just outwardly victorious, but is gracious and kind and merciful and humble because of someone else's work on our behalf. Chapter 3, 8 through 4, 19 again, rehearses what that submission looks like, what it looks like in suffering to be a people who have received God's grace, what it looks like to submit to authorities, what it looks like to submit in your family structure, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, what it looks like to submit to your coworker or your employer. So, submission to God is an outflowing, an outpouring of God's grace, the actual grace that we stand in. Chapter 5, 1 to five eleven, brings the charge to elders to lead an example before the people in a way that honors God and humbles themselves, but humble and confident on the truth of Scripture. This is so that every man might be humble before a holy God and receive God's gracious blessing, not his hand of punishment. So Peter calls us to this true grace of God. This grace of God allows us to suffer. It allows us to see suffering and trial as a good thing, as a thing that's there to shape us into a people, who are pure. It allows us to see that grace is completely poured out, not because we deserve it, but because he is good and he is gracious. So we're to stand firm in this grace. Peter calls us to stand firm. He really wants us to put our faith and trust in this relationship. Is it two-sided? No, it's one-sided. God disadvantaged himself, tore apart his unity in the Trinity, and said, no, Jesus came to this earth, and God turned his back on him and poured out all his wrath that I deserved on Jesus, disadvantaged himself so that I could be brought into fellowship with God. And so this grace of God changes and transforms us the way we need to think about our lives We need to think about faith. Today, God would have you and I rehearse the grace and the favor of God on us to call us and to fill us with his spirit, to equip us to live humble and submissive lives. Chapter 4, verse 19 says we're to commit our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
And so the grace of God allows us to stand firm, knowing that difficulty may come, struggle may come, suffering may come, hardship may come, but all of that is to shape us into a people who proclaim God's grace, who stand faithfully in it, trusting their souls not to the circumstances around them, not to this world's um, goods or evils, but to God, the one who is just. And so, what is this gospel, this grace of God that we rehearse? Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that we, we talked about that is reserved in heaven for us, unfading, undefiled. It's going to stand. And so Peter is calling us to remember, stand in this grace and it is being reserved for you. Your salvation, the grace of God will be revealed, revealed fully in the end. So then we who are by God's power are being guarded through this faith for a salvation ready to re- ready to be revealed at the last time. Verse 18 of the same chapter, chapter 1. We know this, that we should function in our time here in exile in fear, knowing that we were ransomed from our feudal ways, inherited from our forefathers, not by perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a lamb without blemish and without spot. We've been ransomed. We've been bought back by Jesus Christ, by his blood. And it's because of his blood that we can experience the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God on our behalf so that we could be brought into fellowship. That's good news. That changes us. And that's what we need to stand firm in. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, by the living and abiding word of God, the word of God is this good news the end of verse 25. I want to rehearse again chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. He who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous in place of the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 22 who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He is reigning king now on my behalf. His blood shed for my sins. His mercy given to me when I didn't deserve it. Completely undeserving. His grace poured out. This is the truth in which we stand. This is the message of the gospel that moves our heart to worship. This is the message of the gospel that changes and transforms us. Chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. And 
after you had suffered a little while, the God of all grace, all grace, inexhaustible, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grace of God, the unmerited favor of God is poured out on us who believe. So it brings us to this conclusion, those last two verses. This, brothers and sisters, is the true grace of God. We stand firm in the hope of the gospel. The God of all grace will give you all that is good and all that is glorious in Christ, and it is yet to be revealed. All of the good and the blessing and the hope that we think is going to come to us is going to come in its fullness when Christ comes again. And we get to experience his glory with him. First Peter tells us that we actually contribute to his glory when he comes because his spirit is in us, making us into his image. And that image-shaping work in us is what gives him glory. This life, all of it. It's for God's glory, whether we eat, drink, or sleep, or whatever we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, it's for God's glory. And so, John 15 says, we bear fruit. It's for God's glory. We get to participate in the glory to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes back and claims his bride. We get to participate in God's work. We get to see the sanctifying work of God through suffering and through difficulty to shape us, through submission to our authorities to shape us, through suffering while doing good to shape us and to make us into image bearers that give glory to God at his final revealing. When he comes back, that will be a good day. That will be a glorious day. We look forward to that. This is God's grace. God's grace is not exhausted here on this earth for us. It's not limited to our justification. It's not limited to the fact that we've been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. It's poured out daily. John 1 says grace comes in abundant supply. Grace upon grace. It's like the waves. They don't stop. They keep coming. And God's grace is like that. It comes. And it's inexhaustible. And Paul says it's for all of life. It's for my weakness. It's coming. God's grace. And where does this grace come from, Peter says? It comes from the truth that we have been redeemed. We have experienced the merit and the favor of God on our behalf, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. This grace of God is transforming grace. This grace of God helps us in our weakness. This grace of God restores our souls. This is the grace in which we stand. So brothers and sisters, let me remind you again of Peter's closing benediction. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What does Romans say? We heard this morning, to those who are in Christ, we have peace with God. There's no more condemnation to those of you who are in Christ. There's no more wrath being poured out on your sins at the final day because you are in Christ and he has exhausted the wrath of God on your behalf. This is the grace in which I stand. This is the grace that tells me when I commit a sin in my life right now, when I'm still still struggling to communicate my loyalty to my God and I stumble and I falter and I gossip or I'm harsh with my kids or I'm discontent with my wife, my sin 
is not there to condemn me anymore because of Jesus Christ, because of the grace of God. I can stand firmly saying he will show mercy because he has exhausted the wrath of God on my behalf. On Jesus. This is the grace of God that changes us, that transforms us, that allows us to suffer in this life, that restores our souls when it's exhausting, when we don't have any joy left, when our reason for living is gone, when our suffering takes us out of a workplace we loved. Why would God do this? He would do this to supply us with grace that causes us to rejoice. He would do this to supply us with grace that changes our outlook on life. There, are no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So then when we're struggling as believers um, that we don't perform to God's standard, that we're not accepted because of our performance, you and I have to stand firm in covenant with this grace of God. It's undeserved. It's costly grace, and it was poured out for me. So when sin, as a father or mother, an employee, or as a friend, comes knocking, when Satan would destroy us like a roaring lion, where do we stand? Do we stand on our merit? No. We can't get God's grace on our merit. We stand in God's perfect grace. We stand on the truth of the gospel that I've been redeemed because of the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf today. When we see our blind spots of pride, when we're not ready to humble ourselves, but God resists the proud and humbles us. Before a loving Father, we can resist the evil one because we stand firm again in the faith. We stand firm in the grace of God that shows us our sin, that would have us make a decisive break with it and follow him. The grace of God helps us confess that we are not righteous, helps us confess that we don't deserve mercy, and helps us rely on God's grace. The very thing that we are called to exercise is the very thing that supplies the faith we're called to use. God's grace gives us everything we need for this relationship. He gives us exactly what he calls us to stand in. It's not of us. And so today, we rejoice. We rejoice that we've been born again to a living hope. And the message of 1 Peter calls us to stand firm in this faith. So we're going to sing a medley of two songs in just a moment. The musicians can come at this time. They're going to come lead us. And I would like you and I to take a minute to think of the grace of God in the gospel. And lay aside, as Hebrews calls us to in chapter 12, lay aside every sin and weight that would easily beset us and look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and persevere in that stand, in this grace alone. So stand with us. We're going to sing two songs.